Well, we're going now to look into Paul's letter to the Romans. So if you would like to flick back in your Bible to the letter to the Romans. And if you've been coming along to the church for a little while, you'll know that we've been going through Paul's letter to the Romans and when we took a break over the summer. And so now summer's no longer here. So we're coming back to Romans after quite a, quite a break. And what I thought we ought to do is a revision of where we've got to so far. And we are sort of halfway through Romans chapter 8. So what I thought would be useful would be to do a revision of from the beginning right up to Romans chapter 8. And then having committed myself to do that, I realise this is almost impossible. So I'm going to ask Chris to pray before we come to look at God's word. <laughs> the letter to the Romans open in front of you. So I'm going to ask you to be really willing to concentrate hard and think carefully. So I entitled it Romans for Dummies, uh, which is not very flattering for any of us really, but we will try and do a very quick view of Romans 1 to 7. But I'm going to start by saying why bother even doing that? Why is Romans, this letter give it its proper title, Paul's letter to the Romans, but we call it Romans for short. Why is it important for us? And perhaps the way to answer it is to ask this question, why did Paul write it at all in the first place? So let's, for a few minutes, try and think why he wrote it in the first place. Here's a, a, here are a few reasons, and you might like to look at the verses where I've got this from. I think that one reason that he wrote it was to promote gospel mission onwards. He was thinking of the spread of the Christian faith across the world. And in Romans 15 verse 30, if you're able to, please look at that. This is towards the end of the letter. And he says in Romans 15:30. I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. That's just one sentence, but it seems to imply he's saying, I really want you to get involved with what I'm doing. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm being a missionary. I've got the idea of going on and going further. And I want you to feel involved with this, and so I'm writing to the letter, letter to the Romans. That would make sense for us too, wouldn't it? It would be a good thing for us to feel, yes, I'm involved with the spread of the mission of the gospel. Here's a second reason. To exhort believers to holy living. This is from chapter 6, verse 1. The word exhort is like the word encourage, only it's stronger. It's, it not only includes a sort of cheering and um, raising of the voice, but it also includes a slight kick up the backside. So this is exhorting, and he's saying, come on guys, I want you to live 
godly lives. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We who died to sin, how shall we live in it any longer? And here's another aspect of this whole letter. He's saying Christians ought to be living different lives to people who are not Christians. And the difference is not just in their timetable, but in the deep quality of how they live and why they live. And he's saying we should not be living in sin any longer. So I put there, he's written it to exhort believers, to encourage them and give them a kick to say, come on, let's not be satisfied with living lives that, are, that have got sin and unholiness. Let us live lives that are like Jesus Christ. That was my, what's my second thought on why he wrote it. If he wrote it for that, it's useful for us, isn't it? We need to be told that. Third reason that came to my mind, to show them how excellent it is to be a Christian. So I've now dodged to Romans 8, verse 1, where he says, for example, Therefore, because of all that I've been saying, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. I think that that is saying to Christians, here is an excellent thing. Guilt and all that comes from guilt, the feeling of guilt, feeling bad about oneself, feeling bad about where one is in life, all these sorts of things that come from guilt. He says, Christians, I know you're not perfect and I know you still sin, but I want you to try to understand that if you belong to Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is this that God has in some really rather mysterious and amazing way worked out that he is going to say not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty over each of the lives of his people. There is, says Paul, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think that's an excellent thing. And he wanted them to know that. And I think he would want us to know it too. And he goes on in chapter 8, and these are the things that we're going to look at, hopefully, in the next few weeks. For example, in chapter 8, verse 37, he says, uh, think of all the things that crop up in life that are against us. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he goes on to say, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think he's saying something that's excellent about being a Christian. He's, he's getting Christians to remember what a wonderful, privileged position God has brought us into. No condemnation. Whatever it is we face, we are more than conquerors. 
and nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think he wanted to remind people of the excellences of being a Christian and I think that would be relevant for us too, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be good if you're a believer to hear again, needing it said to us again and uh, emphasised it's a brilliant thing to be a Christian. Uh, Another point, to explain to them how Jews and Gentiles, that would include everybody, Jews and Gentiles, but for them Jews and Gentiles, can live together as a community as the Bible says. Now I've tried to squeeze a lot into a, a sentence there, but this is one of the things that he is in the back of his mind all the way through Romans. We've got Jews and we've got Gentiles. And the Jews are Jews because of what any chance of closing that door, Aaron? Cause, and the door will go bang when it closes, but then it might be a bit quieter afterwards. The Jews might be feeling, well, the Bible tells us to be Jews, and that means not mixing with the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are saying, well, we've become Christians, so... Uh, those Jews are all behind the times and there, there would be a lot of scope for friction but what Paul spends a lot of time saying is the Bible tells Jews to become Christians and Christians to accept Jews and to live together as one community for example in chapter 14 verse 1 he says accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters and without going into a lot of detail I think that sentence is part of this whole thing of how his readers could live together as a community despite huge barriers of culture and background those huge barriers between them and it seems to me that if Paul could write to those people and say God has taken away the barriers for you to live together that's the biggest barrier of all because it's a barrier that God put there between Jew and Gentile then all the more whatever trifling differences we might feel in class or background or upbringing Uh, they're trivial compared with those differences and Paul is arguing for the community and the unity of the churches accept one another build one another up love one another pray for one another work together with one another so I think the unity of the church is one of the things he's writing about and we need that too don't we the time to preach about the unity of the church is when things are going well. By the time people have split off, it's a bit too late to be thinking about the unity of the church. Uh, So here is another reason why he writes. And let me suggest one more, which is to give them insight to think and live in a transformed way. There's a famous couple of verses in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. 
do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will I'm just picking out from there the transformation of the mind or the transformation by the renewing of your mind he wants them to understand so that they can think so that they can live in a transformed way and you might say well that's a lot of trouble to go to why can't he just tell them what to do and apparently Paul thinks that it's a, a much deeper business than that that we need to learn to think in a different way and that's how we shall be able to live in a different way that's, perhaps that's why the letter to the Romans is so long and so difficult because he's really getting us to think well those are my thoughts about why Paul wrote it and if you agree with those I think you will see some reasons why it's worth us reading it because they all apply to us don't they I think so anyway so let me try and do this whistle stop quick overview starting at Romans chapter 1 what has he been saying I would like to try and focus these on a number of people that he mentions so first of all let's think about what he says about God so this is Romans in 25 minutes or something like that what does he say about God he starts off with God Romans chapter 1 if you have it open your eye might flick around in that and you'll see the, verse 16 the power of God and verse 18 the wrath of God and verse 21 knowing God and verse 24 God gave them over and then verse 25 the truth of God and the creator and so on and I would like to summarize that and say he is saying God is our maker God is the God of glory and power and the human problem is that though we know these things in some real way we reject what we know we neglect what we know and we abuse what we know Paul says in verse 18 the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for from the creation of the world God's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse for although they knew God they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened and Paul is saying here is the fundamental problem of the human race it's not saying that the fundamental problem of the human race is that they are rude to one another or that they steal from one another or they lie to one another he's saying the fundamental problem is how they relate to God and what God 
who God is, what he is like, is abundantly clear, but people neglect God. People are irreverent to God. People exchange what God is like for something else they would prefer. And they deny him and don't glorify him and nor give thanks to him. So I've got a little picture which comes from what Tim was saying on Friday. It's a bit like a fish surrounded by water, swimming through water. That's the very life place in life that it lives and the fish saying there's no such thing as water and that's a, that, maybe that picture will stick in your mind but it, that's sort of the idea he has about humanity that God gives everything and surrounds us with his presence and yet humanity says no, nope, no such thing as God or um, uh, what God is really like is like this elephant or God is really like this or whatever so that is my first key idea of the rejection of God and so God hands over, God hands humanity over, God hands over to sin and to wrath. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And chapter 2 verse 5 talks about storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. First key point then is God whom humanity has rejected and God says, well, if you don't want me, I'm going to step back from you and I'm going to leave you in your plight. I'm going to leave you in your pickle of sin and one day I will come and judge you. I could ask you where you stand on that. I could ask you whether you say not convinced or whether you say other people might do that. I don't do that. I've never done that. Or whether you might say, well, actually, that's exactly uh, where I would be if it weren't for the Lord. Uh, that's how I have been. I've lived my life as if God never existed. And I'm sorry that I've done so. Let's move on through to chapter 3. And the next key idea is Christ crucified. So having, he actually spends quite a lot of time explaining sin and the alienation of humanity from God and all that that means and how widespread it is and what the effects are. And he ends up saying, you know, everybody's in this pickle. So what's the solution? And the solution, he says, is in chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. How can people be right with God? Well, now there is an answer. But now a righteousness from God, or a righteousness of God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all, that's to say Jew and Gentile, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and 
are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice and so he goes on, talks about those who have faith in Christ. So he says an awful lot in that paragraph. It's very difficult to, to re-say it in just five minutes or so, but he says before there was something and now there's something else. Well, before there was the testimony of the law and the prophets. So that's, it, that's the Old Testament, saying that the Old Testament spoke about something which was yet to come. And it spoke in all sorts of ways and in considerable depth about what was going to happen and what was going to happen. Well, what was going to happen was Jesus was going to die on the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, we could now see how it could possibly be that people could be righteous. It shows that the right, a righteousness from God, how from God you and I can be made righteous and it's the righteousness of God in the fact that it also shows how God is just when he makes sinners just. He is just and as it says the one who ju just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And what happens on the cross? Well, what the law can't do, the law of Moses, that is, or any other set of laws, can't make us right with God. We can't get right with God by trying harder, doing more, wishing we'd done better, turning over a new leaf. We can't get right with God by any of those things, only by the powerful act of the cross. It's said to be uh, redemption, verse 24, the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption is a powerful act that releases people from slavery and sets them free. It might be a very strong activity or it might be the payment of a very great price but God is a redeemer this is the sort of thing he does and here at the cross is his great act of redemption where a mighty work was done and a huge price was paid it's also said to be a sacrifice of atonement and the sacrifice of atonement is where sin is put on the sacrifice, usually a sacrificial animal. The animal receives the penalty that that sin deserves and receives the death penalty as is shown by the fact that the animal bleeds and dies. And what this says is Jesus Christ was that animal. Jesus Christ died on the cross as an act of redemption and as a sacrifice of atonement, and it was in his blood. So Jesus died on the cross for our salvation. Nothing less would do. 
and what a mighty act it was that Jesus should die what on earth was happening when God's own son said my God my God why have you forsaken me what on earth was happening when the sky went dark as Jesus died what on earth was happening when the rocks split open as he died well something huge was happening uh, an act of redemption a sacrifice of atonement in his blood and for that reason and for that reason alone God is able to justify freely that's what it says to justify freely I'm just looking where it does say that it says it in verse 24 justified freely the freely word means for no good reason a friend of my dad's was walking on the beach in North Wales and some guy came up to him for no reason punched him in the mouth and broke some of his teeth and my dad said to my friend well what did you do to annoy him and he said I didn't do a thing he just came up to me for no reason banged me in the mouth broke some of my teeth the word you would use was freely he did it freely for no particular reason and that conversely is how God justifies sinners what have we done to deserve it nothing he just does it it's just that something that he's decided to do within himself but he doesn't smash us in the teeth he forgives our sins justified freely by grace and how are we to receive that well there's only one way to receive grace which is by accepting it and saying yes which is in Paul's way of talking faith to say to God really do you offer that is that what you are prepared to do is that what Christ means and the one who says yes to that I want that this is amazing I receive that is the believer and we become Christians by believing by saying to the Lord this is amazing this is amazing I'm not going to quarrel with you over this I'm just going to say yes to be received by grace as a matter of faith and therefore to be counted and dealt with as righteous to be justified I'm sorry I haven't got time to keep on explaining Paul's vocabulary but he's saying I'm going to treat you as if you were as righteous as Jesus Christ I'm going to put you in the box which says totally innocent totally commendable these are the people that I am for so we stopped off there in chapter 3 let's go on into chapter 4 chapter 4 so I've talked about God we've talked about Christ and let's talk in chapter 4 about Abraham and chapter 4 is about Abraham who is the example of faith now he's a Jew but Paul says you can't understand Abraham just by thinking of his circumcision and his Jewishness you've got to think of Abraham as a man of faith that's key to him 
And he is a man who was counted righteous because of his faith. Chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, found in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's the man of faith who trusted God, and God said, he's my man, I'm for him. Uh, Paul goes on to say that his faith was a faith which faced death and looked beyond it. Uh, this is in a couple of ways in regarding how old he and his wife were when they conceived their child Isaac, and it's also to do with the fact that Isaac was to be offered and killed and then received back, and in both ways. Abraham's faith encountered the adverse possibility of death and believed that God could overcome. And Abraham there in chapter 4 is, a, is really an example to us. Abraham managed to walk by faith and God is saying to us that's the way Christians live. They walk by faith. There's a photograph of Abraham. I'm sure you see the likeness of it. He was asked to go to somewhere he didn't know. He was asked to go to the promised land uh, and he was, he was asked just to trust God. Uh, as the theologian Calvin said, he had God's naked word. He had just what God said and he had to d d decide in his heart, that's good enough for me. The uh, example of Abraham, our forefather, Verse 12, he is the father of the circumcised who are not own, and not only are circumcised but who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the man of faith. And I want to say this morning as we whoosh through Romans, that's something we need to be reminded of, isn't it? That we walk by faith. Sometimes all we have to go on is the word of God. And if we're to follow in Abraham's footsteps, we hang on to the word of God. Let's think about chapter 5. Second part of chapter 5, two more people to think of, Adam and Christ. And it's in chapter 5 that Paul moves into this idea of belonging to Adam and belonging to Christ. He says there's a, a comparison between Adam, our first father, and the way he affects us, and Christ, and the way he affects us if we belong to him. And you might remember I gave the example of bubble wrap versus the tree. If you want to kill a tree, which apparently our next door neighbours did a while ago because there was a tree of ivy going up the wall and it was this huge, huge thing and one day we woke up and found it all died. And what had happened was that our neighbour had just cut something, one axe at the bottom there and the whole thing died. So that one axe affected the whole thing. Unlike bubble wrap, if you want to kill a whole lot of bubble wrap, Seems a rather bloodthirsty way of putting it. But you know what you have to do with bubble wrap, don't you? You just have to go pop, pop, 
pop, pop, pop, pop, pop, pop, pop, pop, pop, to each one individually. So you've got to do it lots and lots of times, you know, a thousand pops. And Paul is saying that the way God deals with the human race is not like bubble wrap, but like the tree. And Adam killed us all by his one act, not one axe, but one act of disobedience, and that killed everybody else. We all entered sin and death. And Christ, in a similar way, by one act of righteousness on the cross, changes everything for the whole tree of people that belong to him. I had another example. Uh, so it's not like tennis, but like football. So tennis is an individual sport. That's Roger Federer, and I think uh, that's a very good picture of Federer. He, if he loses, he loses. If he has a bad game, he has a bad game. If he has a good game, he has a good game. But if you compare with football, you can be a member of the team and you might actually have a lousy game and mess up all the passes that come to you. But if your captain is totally brilliant, he's one of these one-man teams in himself, who scores a hat-trick in the first 45 seconds, I, I, I obviously exaggerate, even though you've made such a mess of it, because it's a team thing, and the way it works, if the captain scored, we're all on the winning side. Yeah. And so the way God saves people in this sense is not that each has to earn their own salvation, but Christ, our great captain, has scored this colossal, wonderful goal by dying on the cross for us. And even though we've all messed things up terrifically, we're still on the winning side. It's a thought, isn't it? I know it's an imperfect illustration, but it's something like that. That is quite a thought, isn't it? Because we think about ourselves, we think, well, I've messed this up, I've got this wrong. But we're not to think like that. We're to think, well, it's a team, and Christ has done brilliantly and uh, he's done it all for us and we all apparently share in this victory so when Adam sinned we all were made sinners but because of union with Christ Christ with one act of righteousness on the cross and we're all counted righteous and we're all in due course not only counted righteous but made righteous and in Romans chapter 6, he takes this on into an area which I think most of us find quite difficult to understand. But he says, here's a, a deep truth that Christ died. You're, you belong to him. You're in the same tree with him. You're in the same team with him. So in a sense, you died. And something, through union with Christ, something terminated in your life. And he rose, and there's a new life power about Jesus Christ, and that somehow spills over into your life too. There is a new principle of life in you. And I won't stop to try and enlarge on that, because I'd 
take up too much time. Let's go on into the next chapter, which is around chapter 7. So we've talked about God and Christ and Abraham and Adam. And let's now talk a little bit about Moses, or rather the law of Moses. And in chapter 7, Paul makes the point that the Jew, his Jewish readers used to have a very close relationship to the law of Moses, that they were almost married to the law, that every single thing that they did and said was reflected on the thou shalt not of the law and everything there. And Paul says, do you know that Christ has stepped in and changed the dynamic of this, that the believer is not married to the law, but married to Christ. That's what it says in Romans chapter 7, for example, verse 4, So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. And there's quite a, a, a subtle idea and quite a lot going on there, but I just offer that as something to summarize the new position of the believer. We are married to Christ. We say to him, what would you like me to do? What is your view of this? It emphasizes our walking with Jesus Christ in the decisions and the moments and the direction of our lives. And I'll add one more thing about Moses uh, or the law, that Paul is aiming that the righteous intentions and principles of the law would not be obliterated or rendered obsolete, but the intentions of principles of the law should actually be fulfilled in us. And all the way through he's been saying, no, do we overthrow the law by faith? Uh, do, we, do we overthrow the law by faith? No, we uphold the law. Or shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. Or he says in chapter 8, find the right place, uh, chapter 8 verse 4 he condemns sin in sinful man in, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit which brings us to our final key thought that in Romans chapter 8 he says you're justified, you belong to Christ, your relationship with the law is different, and the reason it's different is because you have the work of the Holy Spirit in you in this way. There are new powers above us and around us and within us, says Paul. There are new powers above us and around us and within us. So I've got, got a photograph of some of you. There we are. It's obviously not a photograph of any of the ladies, but... He particularly talks about the work of the Spirit inwardly in the mind. 
He talks about having minds set on the spirit. Chapter 8, verse 5. Those who are according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. And so I'm just bringing us up into chapter 8 where he says there's a new set of way of thinking, a new set of thoughts, a new set of motives by the work of the spirit within the believer and the believer thinks for example it's spoken of in chapter 8 verse 15 as the spirit of sonship and by him we cry abba father and the believer feels by the power of the spirit i can call god my father i don't fear god as being a nasty headmaster or an unfair critic or if my own earthly father hadn't treated me very well I don't think of him as being a cruel father but I can think of him as being my glorious strong wise faithful loving heavenly father the spirit of sonship and the spirit of future glory which is a topic in itself chapter 8 verse 18 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us and the the spirit brings a sense of the long-term future the things I do in this life are to be measured not just against what I can get in the immediate future uh, but what the implications for the long-term future for future glory and the mind of the spirit also brings to us not only songs but sighs and in verse 26 it says the spirit himself intercedes with us for us with groans that words cannot express and in verse 23 we who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies the work of the spirit not only to bring assurance but to bring um, a certain discontentment the sighs of the redeemed as well as the songs of the redeemed well there we are I've whooshed from Romans chapter 1 through to Romans chapter 8 and we stopped off you'll remember with God and with Christ and his cross and with Adam and the bubble wrap and with Abraham and the walk of faith and Moses of the law uh, Christ being our new husband and here the new life of the spirit so my job is simply to say you're in there somewhere what we've been looking at involves you it involves you perhaps in the excellence of all this and you can say that's me I'm so glad I was reminded of that this morning or it may be that you're not there yet that this is where you would like to be and you might be thinking that is so brilliant I would like to have some of that I would like to be able to say that's me and I would encourage you if that's where you're at to keep asking God there's a, 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 a sentence that Jesus used where he says 
ask and you will receive seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened and asking is if you haven't got something but you want it so keep asking and seek is if you've lost something and you want to find it so keep seeking and knocking is when you're locked out of something and you want to be let into it and keep knocking so if that's you God is saying to you do you really, can, do you really want this? are you really seeking and knocking? because if you do if you knock you'll be let in if you seek you'll find if you ask you will receive let's stop there and we'll sing together remember the boys and girls are going to come in and we're going to hear something from them but let's sing number 503 about the privilege that we have because Christ is in heaven for us number 503 before the throne of God above I have a strong a perfect plea when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within I look to heaven and see him there who made an end of all my sin so we sing 503